Again, welcome to New Community. So glad that you're here. We are going to uh, continue in our time with a little scripture reading. We're reading out of the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It should be on the screen. And if you would just join me in reading, that would be fantastic. Maybe it's not on the screen. Maybe that's my fault. Bingo. Write this to the messenger of the assembly in Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your actions. Indeed, I have placed an open door that no one can shut in front of you. I know that you have a small amount of power and that you have held on firmly to my word and have not denied my name. This morning, we're going to be looking at the church to Philadelphia. And uh, I don't know what you think of when you instantly think of Philadelphia, but I grew up two hours outside of Philadelphia, and so I think of cheesesteaks with the whiz. I don't know if, if you've not had one on Broad Street, you don't know what I'm talking about, but definitely with the whiz, that's what I do. Uh, I think of Rocky Balboa, you know, running the stairs. If you've been to Philly, you should have run the stairs. If you didn't, you missed out. Uh, I think of the Liberty Bell. I think of the city of brotherly shove, not love, because everyone knows people in Philly are jerks, and that's what they do. They treat people horrible. Um, And then also the location of my first kiss. These all flood into my mind when I think of Philadelphia. But technically, uh, those that would have been reading the scriptures would have been thinking about a small little city in central Turkey that uh, was founded in about 140 BC. It was a city that was known for its grapes. It was a city known for having been destroyed multiple times with earthquakes because it kind of sat on a fault line. Uh, It was a prosperous city, gateway to the east. They had all these interesting things about it. And uh, Jesus had, through John, some really um, helpful and challenging words for this community that I think will be hopefully just as challenging and encouraging to us. I want to remind you of what I talked about last week because repetition is the key to learning is one reason, but two because I know it's a little bit more detailed and um, a little bit more complicated. But uh, the writing in this section of the seven churches was written in a chiastic structure. So there's a little image that you'll see. Uh, This is a reminder that the first and last and make their way to the center, uh, which the next slide will explain it a little bit more. So um, what you have, I'm going to try to use this handy-dandy pointer. Uh, What you have is the first and the last churches are the ones that are connected to each other. These two churches are the ones that receive the most criticism. In fact, Laodicea, the last one, which we'll cover next week, only received criticism and no compliments, no praise, no encouragement. Then you have the two here in the middle, which we'll be looking at Philadelphia today. These two only received positive statements, no criticism, completely positive all, this is what you're doing well, keep it up, we love you, amazing. The three that are in the middle right here all received both positive and negative, 
And anytime you have a chiastic structure like this, this becomes the most important one. So the one we covered last week, the most important one, of the seven letters to the seven churches with seven sections in each letter, this one had the most, uh, kind of, it had all seven. It's the longest of all the letters to the churches. And the center theme of that particular church is the idea of idolatry. So we talked last week about what idolatry is, what it looks like, how it shows up in our life. And the center verse of the entire section is the statement that God knows our deeds. He sees our actions and he will judge or evaluate the way we live our life. So we talked about that last week. If you go back and listen, you'll hear a little bit more detail about this chiastic structure. So that's a little bit of a recap because the church that we're looking at today is a church that only received praise, only compliments, and we'll look at a lot of what is said to this community. If you look at the text, Revelation 3-7, it starts off like almost every letter does, which is a statement about who Jesus, the risen Christ, is. I'll just remind you of it. It says, write this to the messenger of the assembly in Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so it starts with this fourfold description of who Jesus is in this text. And again, it's drawing from Revelation 1. It first off says that he's the Holy One, which is like one of the most definitive characteristics of who God is. It's his distinctive attribute of him being set apart or perfect, or pure, then describes Christ as true, meaning he cannot lie, that he is trustworthy at all times and in every way. And then it describes the third characteristic is that he holds the keys, or the key of David. Now, I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think of that, but I instantly think of someone who works in the maintenance department, and off to the side, is this carabiner with like a thousand keys. I remember when I was in elementary school and you're like walking through the hallway and you see that person walk and just you're hearing the jingle and the jangle and you see it and you're like, that dude holds all the power. Like he can lock doors, he can get in anywhere he wants. Like that's what I imagine. And really, that's what the author John is trying to communicate, that all the authority, all of the power is official and it belongs with Christ. And then the last statement is that he opens and shuts the doors, which really is trying to capture this idea that he's the shot caller. Like he gets to decide what's open and what's closed. He gets to determine the plan. Um, And so these statements about who Jesus is kind of frame what is said to the church of Philadelphia. The text then goes on to say this, I know your actions Indeed, I have placed an opened door that no one can shut in front of you. I know that you have a small amount of power and that you are held on firmly to my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will place those of the satanic synagogue who claim they are Jews but are not, they're liars. I will certainly make them come and prostrate themselves at your feet in worship and admit that I loved you. Because you held on firmly to my word, and had endurance, I also will keep you firmly from the season of tribulation that has come upon the whole inhabited earth to put the inhabitants of the earth through 
an ordeal. So the text starts off, and it says this, I know your actions. I know that you have a little power. I know you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. These are some incredible statements of who the church of Philadelphia is. And Jesus is saying, like, look, I've been watching. I've noticed. You have not denied me. You've remained faithful to me. You are consistent. Even though the religious people have been trying to shut you out of the kingdom of God, you have endured in the midst of it. You've been faithful. And these are powerful words of encouragement. These are statements from Christ basically to say to Philadelphia, you're crushing it. Keep it up. It's amazing. But then he points out a really interesting feature about this church, and he says that you have very little power. In the Greek, it technically means micro power or micro ability. Minimal. Very negligible. And I'm going to go out on a limb and kind of suggest that uh, perhaps over the last couple years, there have been a point in your life that you have felt powerless. You felt weak, kind of helpless in a situation. And when people talk of a sense of weakness, they either talk about it rising up from within or in some ways bearing down upon you. And I think both is true, right? Some feel it rise up within where there's the sense that there is a weakness or a lack of something that I have, and others feel that more external pressure. They feel this sense of, in, in a power-hungry culture, a sense of helplessness. Like, man, I, who am I in the midst of this? What do I have to offer? Um, J.R. Packer, in his book, Weakness is the Way, makes this statement. What is weakness? The idea from first to last is of inadequacy. Inadequacy. I think that is a word that many of us have felt over this last stretch of time. Maybe you have felt inadequate because of the stage of life you're in. Maybe you feel like you're too young to make decisions strictly for yourself, or maybe you feel like you've lost relevance in some way. You feel like the stage that you're in is not one in which your best foot is forward and you feel inadequate. For others, it's physical. Sickness, injury, weakness, health problems, maybe financial, worrying about your job status, worrying about the role you're in. Will you be able to pay the bills? Will you be able to have a secure future? I know others are feeling that inadequacy socially, like a disconnection from people. The sense that maybe others are more connected than you are. Others don't seem to feel lonely or discouraged or on the outside, but you seem to feel that way. Others just feel inadequate in their own person. Not sure that what you have to offer, sense of insignificance or insecurity. Some feel it spiritually. I've talked with many people who just feel like, man, I don't know what I have to offer in this time Everything I do doesn't feel like it's good enough. Somehow I don't feel like I'm pleasing God. All of these, whatever area of your life, there is a sense, perhaps, of weakness, inadequacy. I know that I have felt that way often. 
In fact, I've talked to several pastors that have felt like if there was ever a time in any of our ministries that we have felt the most inadequate, it would be this time. Like, not knowing what to do. Confused. Do I talk to the person and say, man, I haven't seen you in a long time, hope you're doing well, and then be like, oh my goodness, he just wants me to come to the service. I don't. But I felt like, man, should I reach out? Or, man, he reached out, but now he hasn't reached out. Does that mean, like, we don't even noticed anymore? Like, it feels like they're in this space where it's like, man, so many pastors that I've talked to are like, I don't, I don't know how to help. I don't know what to do. Maybe you've felt the same thing with friends, with family, with job. You name it. We feel it. And I think what Jesus is doing to the church of Philadelphia is acknowledging. He's just saying, hey, this is the reality. You are weak in power. You have little to offer. But the interesting thing about this is that's not a critique. That's not a criticism. He's saying it simply as a reality. Like, this is true. But the interesting thing about it is throughout Scripture, that's always been true. He's pointing out the obvious, that we've always been inadequate, and it is based on Christ's strength, not our own. There's this reminder throughout Scripture that, like, you want it to be about you, but it's actually not about you at all. You want it to be about your own self-sufficiency, your ability to prove something, your ability to accomplish, to overcome, to do it on your own, and you're just reminded again and again and again. But that's not the story of the Scriptures. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What he's saying is, we have this treasure, this unbelievable thing, but it is in broken vessels. It's in fragile and inadequate people. Why? To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So we don't get the wrong idea that somehow we figured it out on our own. And Jesus addresses this. He talks about the dependency that's needed on him, being tethered to the vine, being connected to his strength, being the one that relies upon him. And over and over and over we see this in the scriptures, that our significance and influence and security depends on the influence and the power of Christ within us. In Isaiah 40, there's this reminder. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And he gives power to the faint, the inadequate, the weak. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is a reminder this morning from the church of Philadelphia to us. That the Spirit is saying that I am all the power you need. That I am all the sufficiency you need. And if you resonate with that at all, God's word for you today is don't worry about your inadequacy. Worry about his all-consuming power. Worry about his sufficiency. Which leads to the next statement in the book of Revelation to the church of Philadelphia. He says this, 
Indeed, I have placed an opened door that no one can shut in front of you. Now, there's a little bit of debate about what is this open door? What really is he communicating? And there's several thoughts. One is an opportunity for evangelism. So the statement is, Jesus is communicating to the church, hey, there's an opportunity for you missionally to reach your city, to, to figure out how to spread the gospel. It's all about evangelism. And that is good and a helpful reminder, but I don't necessarily think that's the main focus. The second big idea that a lot we'll talk about is that Jesus is saying, I've opened a door to a relationship with me. You'll notice later in the book of Revelation, he says, I knock at the door, but nobody is opening it. And if you did, I'd come and have dinner with you and we would relate to one another. So some suggest that what is being communicated is that there is an open door for all of us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be connected, to be known, that the invitation is there. And this is a reminder to say, enter in. Seek me and you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. And so it's just kind of a reminder there. But again, I think those are both helpful perspectives. Another perspective that you can consider as we look at this passage is it's apparent both in the history of this city, also apparent in this letter, that the church of Philadelphia faced several obstacles. And one of the major obstacles was the influence of the Jewish population in the city at the time. So the Jewish community in Philadelphia would have had several thousand members, a robust like synagogue, a lot happening. And the Christian church, and this is part of why he said you're small in power, at that point they suggest it was about two to three dozen people, period. So, You are small in stature and size and power is a statement to say there are very few of you in this city and there is a large Jewish contingent in the synagogue. And the problem with that was that the Jewish synagogue was controlling who was able to come in and worship and participate in the synagogue and who wasn't. And so once a Jewish person had declared or once anyone had declared faith in Jesus as Messiah, and had become a Christ follower, or a follower of the way, they then became excluded from the synagogue. So what was happening is they would show up to do temple worship, to worship Yahweh, and they would be told, not for you, and you're on your way. It's only for us. And so a lot of that was resulting in persecution, the small group of people who were being kind of ostracized, not able to worship, and all of their faith was being challenged in that moment. And uh, you might be asking yourself the question, why would anyone do that? Why would they be excluded? Why would they kick them out? Why does any of that matter? Well, first off, obviously there were conflicts in theology. They had a difference of opinion as it relates to what they believed that scriptures were teaching or who Messiah was. So they disagreed on the Messiah. They also disagreed on the fact that there would be the inclusion of Gentiles. So Jews who had trusted Christ, Messianic Jews, would have been starting to be called Christians, but also then Gentiles, those outside of Jewish heritage, were also included in Christianity. And so now they're going, yeah, you're including the wrong people. Those people aren't permitted to be a part of what we've been a part of. And then 
last, they weren't necessarily following, you see this throughout the New Testament, they weren't following the dietary restrictions or the circumcision laws or rules about Sabbath. So again, religious like customs and tradition and the way they were like living out their faith looked different. So when anyone ever tells you that, I mean, the Bible kind of isn't really relevant because it used to be true, but isn't true today, I would tell you that's exactly <laughs> what is happening today, right? The very same things are happening. Disagreements about theology, the difference of opinion on rules or restrictions about religion, all of that is leading to the exclusion of people or the division of faith. You see it over and over and over, churches dividing and splitting and fracturing or not liking this other church. And Jesus is saying to this community, not just ours, but to the church of Philadelphia, indeed I have placed an open door in front of you, one that no one can shut. What he is speaking to is that the open door is a sign of welcome. It's a sign of invitation. It's a statement to say, that you belong here, that you're included, that you're invited, that we want your presence to be a part of this community. And Jesus is calling us and inviting us and welcoming us through this door, which I think is basically a statement to say this is a sign of the kingdom, that you're welcome here, that you belong, that you're included, that God's kingdom is about inclusion and not exclusion. In fact, uh, Miroslav Volf makes this statement. He says, Because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of three persons, faith leads human beings into a divine communion. One cannot, however, have a self-enclosed communion with the triune God, a foursome as it were. For the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with this God is at once also communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. What Wolf is getting at is that this relationship that you're in with God automatically places you in relationship with others who have entrusted themselves to God which means regardless of difference, regardless of opinion, regardless of race, creed, culture, whatever, that if you're in communion with God, then you are in communion with your brother, and the door is open to them just as much as the door is open to you. And it has to be something that's fought for. Uh, we have shorts coming up here in February. You'll hear announcements about them over the coming weeks. Uh, but one of them is a book study on a book by Jamar Tisby. He makes this statement. Historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They choose comfort over constructive conflict, and in doing so, created and maintained a status quo of injustice. What he's saying is that the church chose to be passive. The church chose to do nothing in the midst of injustice, and in doing so, kind of was a part of that injustice. 
And what we need and what we desire is to be a courageous Christianity, the type of Christianity that's willing to step into rather than to be complicit with systems. And what Tisby is getting at is true not just of racism, and that's obviously what his book is about and what he's highlighting, but you could just replace that exact same phrase with any other thing, right? which would be that historically speaking, when faced with a choice between the equality between men and women within the church, the American church has chosen to be complicit rather than courageous. Or, as it relates to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, it has chosen to be complicit rather than courageous. And what I would suggest is part of the statement that maybe the Church of Philadelphia needed to hear And what we need to continue to be reminded of is that we have been a church that has allowed the Spirit to move in our midst in a way that has challenged us to growth. We've moved from a people of apathy to a people of awareness, then from awareness to empathy, from empathy to action. We've moved from being complicit to being courageous, and each step along the way, I'm convinced that we have been listening as a collective community to the Spirit. And it's almost as if the Church of Philadelphia is being praised for being a community that understands that Jesus is a God that stands with an open door of invitation and says, if you want to look like Jesus, you also stand with an open door to invitation. And my hope and prayer is that we would be a community that always continues to lean into that. Because there's nothing like an open door. Specifically nothing like an open door into a church where you're welcomed and you belong. And the beauty of what I think this text is also saying is that open door invites you into a community, but the true and only real open door is Christ himself. And that our central call is to invite you to love and worship and follow Jesus. And to do that in a place that always welcomes. The last statement that's made to this beautiful church that only gets positive statements about it, in Revelation 3, 11 to 13, it says this, I am coming soon. Hold on firmly to what you have so that no one will take your winner's prize. I will make the one who has the victory a pillar in the temple of my God, and they will certainly never go outside it any more. I will write the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write a new name on them. Those of you with ears, listen to the, what the Spirit says to the assemblies. Now, in each of the letters, there's this phrase at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit might say. And it's repeated again and again, right? And it's something that you hear throughout the Gospels as well. He who has ears, let him hear. And that is not just to hear it, which is how we think of it kind of in English, but it is to listen and then obey. It's to follow. It's to, to understand. And what he's essentially promising to this group of people, and I think it's echoed to us over time, is that to the inadequate, to us, to those who sit with Jesus at an open door, he's promising that he will place on each of us, a name that is permanent, a name that lasts forever. Regardless of circumstance, 
that this name will alter your identity, this name will transform you, this name will give you an identity moving forward, and that is the identity of the true and living God, that he has placed the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit upon you, and that is a name of belonging. That's our invitation this morning. That is our challenge from the book of Revelation to the Church of Philadelphia. And I want to invite you, we're going to pray here in a moment, and then Joseph's going to come and make some announcements. But what we have been trying to do at the end of service is just create a space to say, if you want someone to pray over you, you want someone to speak with you, have a listening ear, we're always available and interested in doing that. So if there's any sense of, man, I have felt inadequate, let us just pray reminders of the goodness of God's power over you. And if there is any sense of, man, there are times I want to be an open door, but I don't know how to do it in my community, in my family, in my life. Let us pray that God might inspire all of us to this heart of invitation. Let me pray. God, we are challenged by your word. We're encouraged by your word. And it sometimes blows my mind that a writing that could be to a small little community of 12 to 24 to 36 people that sat in a space years and years and years ago, that faced persecution, were small in number, that you spoke to them with such confidence about who they were, that you invited them to participate in this kingdom that you're establishing, and that the very words that you're using to inspire and encourage them are the very words that we can use today to have your spirit speak to us once again. So God, speak to us this week. May we live into these challenges and these encouragements. And may your hand continue to rest upon this place as we seek to be an open door as you have invited us into your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.